Welcome to the Mastering Retention Podcast, presented by UserWise. My name is Mike, and I work on the marketing team here at UserWise. This week, Anil Dasgupta, CPO and co-founder at First Light Games, joins Tom Hammond to discuss blockchain technology and the many exciting possibilities it could usher into mobile games. We'll discuss the complexities of integrating NFTs into your game, long-term goals for blockchain gaming, and how to launch a blockchain game. We hope you enjoy. Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined with Anil Dasgupta from First Light Games, and I am Tom Hammond, uh, co-founder of UserWise and your host, of course. Um, you know, it's funny that we're doing this today because guess what I was thinking about this morning when I was at the gym? I was thinking all kind of about uh, Web3 kind of blockchain type games and stuff. Um, so, Great coincidence, and I've got lots of things on my mind already to, to do, dive into this one. But before we do, um, I always like to ask my guests, you know, what's your story? Like, how did you get into this wonderful world of games? Hey, Tom. Yeah, thank you for having me. Wow, I've got quite a story for you, so let's get straight into it. I mean, mine's pretty illustrious and terrible at the same time. So I think way back when, when I was like a, a teenager, I loved video games like everyone else did. And mm-hmm. I used to love Street Fighter 2 and Street Fighter 3. So oh, I was yeah. in a family where, uh, as you can tell by my name, my father's Indian. So he wanted me to become an accountant or a doctor, you know, insert the, the stereotypical oh, memes here. I wanted to, or my parents wanted me to be a doctor too. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you know, but that was never for me. And um, I remember my, one of my friends having like a Nintendo Entertainment System playing Super Mario and just being like, this is unreal. And thinking even back then, that like if graphics were like that, you know, they were just going to get better and games were going to take over. So I wanted to do that. But I spent a lot of time playing in the arcade because um, my dad would never buy me a console. So that left me kind of going there. And then it got to the extent where I used to actually skip school on a Friday to go and play Street Fighter in the arcade. So why is this relevant? Well, it's relevant because years later, I'd end up working for Capcom, you know, who made Street Fighter 4. And that was kind of like a dream come true. So, you know, I'd like to get a sort of iterate, you know, I was like gamer at heart. And um yeah, it was always my dream to get in the industry. I think some people find it by accident. For me, it definitely wasn't. I wanted to do it since the age of 10 years old. I started off as a programmer. I actually do not like programming, even though I still do it to this day to help our project <laughs> get along. But I think it's like really good fundamentals for like, you know, if you want to make a game, if you actually understand how to make a game, it gives you a big edge, especially when you're doing some production meetings or, you know, the development, that kind of thing. So you started doing that, um, worked on a few console games, and then you know, Japanese companies are kind of notorious for having glass ceilings if you are, well, not Japanese, to be honest with you, there's quite a lot of companies like that. So there was an opportunity to work in our mobile games division, which I started off doing, and really kind of, really through fortune rather than um, sort of strategic planning, I ended up working on free-to-play games. And this was sort of way back when Zynga was just starting to take over the world on Facebook with a free-to-play, but it hadn't really been done on mobile. And, you know, just being in the right place at the right time on mobile, free to play happen and it, it was hilarious because i've got to say and this is kind of a bit like the whole web3 discussion that back then when we decided to make a free-to-play game people were vehemently against it including myself i thought it was a terrible idea i was very vocal in telling people at the company that it was a terrible idea but i kind of stuck with it because i still like the company i was working with I was like, all right fine you're paying me so i'll do it anyway and then when we saw the revenues coming in it's like wow um, you know, so I mean, I, no idea if she's listening or not. But we had a boss called Midori Yuasa. I used to probably piss her off so much, but she was right. I was wrong. I'm happy to say that she saw <laughs> the, the potential in making free-to-play games on mobile, and you know, the rest, as they say, is kind of history. So then I kind of moved away from programming and getting into products because mm-hmm. we had this sort of interesting thing where it's like, okay, these games are doing crazy amounts, but no one really understood why. Like it was like a day you could come in and the game would have made 400,000 US dollars more than the previous day. And literally no one on our team could tell you why. And wow. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, is this not mad? Like, you know, this is like the, the sheikhs in Saudi Arabia have dug up oil, but how much have you got? Have you got enough that's going to last 40 years or it's going to last four minutes? So I really started sort of like educating myself on product management. And, you know, when I'm involved in deconstructs for fun. I used to have my own kind of blog before that, before I started working with uh, Mishko over at DOF. 
And, you know, the main sort of motivation for me is that I was trying to figure it out myself. So I was like, I have no idea how these games work, but I really like that kind of open, transparent thinking. And it's like, okay, I need to deconstruct the game saying, I think this is good, this is bad. If I've made any mistakes, people who are smarter than me, please let me know, I want to learn. And then yeah. people instead just kept messaging me saying, oh, dude, you understand how they work. You tell us <laughs> how they work. So I was like, oh, great, okay. So it seemed like a kind of natural talent and, and moved into that. So yeah, did that for a bit, worked at some other companies, uh, Gree, Wargaming, amongst others on my CV. I've always wanted to kind of do it for myself. Um, you know, when you are, uh, when I was actually at Capcom, you know, the games that were getting to number one top grossing could be done with less than 10 people in the team. So, you know, that was huge motivation for me to see, I guess, like the Supercell approach before Supercell had done it, which is that you really yeah. can achieve things with a small team. I, I would say that's obviously a lot harder now. Teams are having to get bigger, but I still think you can do it without having to have like 50 people in a team, you know, if you've got really kind of veteran people. So, yeah, yeah that's, that, that's why I'm at my own company now called First Light Games with my co-founders, Neil McFarland, who used to start off us two who made Monument Valley. So he was behind that gaming team. Really amazing guy. And a guy called Matt Ryan, who's our CCO, used to work at like Lionhead and Sony and things like that. So really blessed to work with those guys. And then, yeah, we've kind of recently got into Web3. And I think for me, yeah, I, I see this the same things happening all over again. So, you know, it's so funny. You go on the <laughs> and you go through the echo chamber. It's how Marmite, that's like a really horrible thing you can eat in this country. People either love or hate it. And, um, yeah, it's the same thing. You can definitely tell that some people you say, oh, we're doing it. And people are like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Other people will look at you like they wouldn't break for you if you're crossing the road and they're in their car, you know. There's really kind of like love it or loathe it sort of things. But for me, I really see the potential of it. And I think that people who understand it and get into it early, there's going to be huge winners. You look at, um, you know, recent gaming consolidations this year, the sums of money that are going around are absolutely unreal. And I think, you know, the thing with Web3 is, is bringing, because you know, Gamefly would be another way I would describe these games, is that bringing the sort of financial power that traditional finances can bring into gaming is just going to take it to an entirely new stratosphere, really, and what is possible. Mm. And, um, you know, that's not the only reason for doing it. We'll probably get on to other reasons. You know, I actually think <laughs> it's one of the first times in many years, actually, in gaming that there is something that actually has real tangible benefit to, to players. Um, which actually makes the hatred for it to me even more laughable. But um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. That's what we're doing. We're making the game. You can check it out. It's called Blast Royale. Um, it will be out a little bit later in the year. And um, yeah, it's going to be a battle royale game with play to earn elements. And it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Well, that's great. Before we dive into that. <laughs> so I feel like there's like a little known secret that everyone else actually knows which is you know everyone in gaming kind of dreams of starting their own studio and having like the full creative freedom and stuff um i'm curious how did you go about finding your co-founders because i believe that if you have the wrong co-founders even you know two out of three is not going to cut you that you got to have the right group of co-founders because that can ultimately lead to the company being successful or failing completely um, so I'm, I'm curious for, you know, everyone that's listening today that maybe is, is thinking about it, like, how should they be approaching going about, you know, finding co-founders? I have to say, Tom, that's an amazing question. I actually wish people asked that sort of stuff more commonly. I have to say, for me, it took over five years to find co-founders. And even then, it was a challenge. And I think the reason is, I think it depends if you're lucky in terms of who you meet, because that's ultimately what it comes down to. But I used to work with some very talented people. But a lot of times when you ask people if they would really like put their job on the line, put their money where their mouth is, a lot of people wouldn't do it. And that was like really frustrating because it's like I knew the people who were good enough to do it, but they didn't want to do it. Um, and I seemed to be like the only one who did. So I kept searching for a long time. And then a bit like you were saying, I met some people that potentially could have been co-founders. But in my heart of hearts, I was like, I just don't really feel they're really, really in it. Like, you know, they're, they're kind of die for the cause kind of thing. And. I don't know, you know, especially if you worked in like traditional console development, people have done crunch, you know, working till 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. It's just like a thing in the industry. It shouldn't be, but it is. But most of the time people do it because you love the games that you're working on, right? Like working on a street fighter, you're going to do that. So, um, you know, the people that I was talking to, I didn't really think they, they would go to that level and I kind of put it off. And then, I mean, to answer your question, I think I got lucky, right? So I was speaking to actually a friend that was saying that like, do you know what, I've decided I got to an age where I was like, I can't put it off any longer, it's now or never. So I'm just gonna go for it regardless. I'll be a one man 
team if I have to. And he goes, oh, have you um, spoken to Neil at all? Because he's also looking to do his own startup. And I was like, no. So my co-founder, the first one, the two of us, when we first started up, we'd actually not even met one another before we got, got talking. But then when we got talking, the way I like to describe it is if, if there was like a founder's version of Tinder, we both swiped right. And then, you know, the conversation <laughs> kept going. I actually think someone should make that if it doesn't already exist, because that would probably be amazing. You know, yeah. there is, there, there was, was something yeah. called uh, Co-Founders Lab. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's still around. Um, funnily enough, I actually met my, or my longtime uh, technical co-founder on there. Although, like, we, we sort of met on there, mainly because we were literally the only two people on there that were in <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and then like a couple of years later, something fell into place. We explored something that fizzled for whatever reason. And yeah. then I, I don't know, it was probably again, like five years later when we finally got together and started our first company. Um, but yeah, it looks like it is still around. I have no idea if this actually supports gaming or anything like that. It seems yeah, like probably, probably an avenue. Either. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like I said, I was always lucky. I met that and then it happened very quickly thereafter. So that's how we did it. But I mean, I think that's, that is a difficult balance because at the same time, like I do feel that like I probably wasted several years and maybe not doing it earlier. And I have to say for me, it's like such a thrill to be a part of, even though it's a real roller coaster, the highs and lows are absolutely insane. Um, I, you know, I, I couldn't give it up for the world. I think it's so addictive that, um, you know, because I think as a person, it just takes you to another level. And, you know, I think everyone in the world, you know, you have a dream, right, when you're younger. So I think to be able to try and achieve your dream, whether you succeed or you fail, is like um, you're really pushing yourself to the limit. Whereas if you kind of sit in your some corporate desk, just doing the same thing over and over, I personally just felt like I was dying, you know, even though yeah, you're getting a bit more money, a nicer lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. It's like fundamentally, I just, I felt there was something missing and I felt that for a very long time. So yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how other people find theirs. I don't know if that's a great answer other than saying, you know, I got like the right time. But maybe, <laughs> but networking is important, I would say actually, especially now that pandemic sort of slightly dying down a bit, if not just meet people online. Because, you know, meet 100 people, yeah, maybe 99 of them are terrible, but the one person you meet on the hundredth time could be the one, right? That's the way to do it. Yeah. No, that's great. Okay. <laughs> so let, let's talk a little bit about First Light Games. So you found yeah. your, your founders, like, how did it start? Like, take me through the, the early days. Yeah. You know, and kind of well, the story. Got, uh, yeah. Quite a story journey here as well. Multiple pivots and so on and so forth. When we started, there were just like the three of us and at first, you know, we had aspirations like, okay, what did we think we could do? So my co-founder started us two games who made Monument Valley. Monument Valley is like an iconic mobile game, won multiple BAFTAs, beautiful game, um, super easy to understand, it's got massive mainstream appeal. So, you know, we felt that like one of the really successful things about that game is it had that kind of mainstream appeal that anyone could play it. My experience has come, you know, through extensive product management, understanding like live operations, sophisticated metagames, so on and so forth. So my philosophy was always like, I know there's all this stuff that works, but there's this whole audience that will never get to play a game that has any of that stuff in because the barrier to entry is too high through a kind of like cognitive understanding sort of point of view. And, um, you know, what if the two worlds could collide? Would there be something there? So that was like the original thesis for the company. And that's how we kind of started off making games. That was like our original pitch and things like that. So we caught upon the idea of trying to make like um, RPG card games more accessible as you do. <laughs> that was the one at the time. We'd seen Fire Emblem Heroes. I actually did that on Deconstructs for fun. And I was like, this game's great, but because Nintendo own it, there's all this stuff that they won't do. Like they won't put a chat in the game. They won't yeah. put alliances and guilds because it's against their terms of service. And, you know, we could make that game and make it more accessible. So we started thinking about doing that. And then we realized that because there was only three of us in the company, you would need a team of 30 people to make that game. So we iced that idea after about two weeks. And then we decided to make an idle game instead. Why an idle game? Well, an idle game, we thought it's easy for three people to do. You can get it to market quickly. You can put a sophisticated meta game in there. Maybe it shouldn't be that difficult. The kind of gameplay is pretty simple. And more importantly, I think, you know, with experience, we also recognize that it doesn't matter even if you've got the dream team. 
your first rodeo is unlikely to be a success. I know there are a few people who have hit it out of the park first time round, like seriously would be a good example. But like, you know, even the legendary Supercell works on a game called Gunshine that <laughs> yeah. was pretty rubbish, right? And even they'll admit that, but that's okay because, you know, it takes time for people to gel and get used to another. And even though several members like to Matt, our CTO and myself had worked together at several companies in the past, but not in that small an operation, right? You're talking like in teams of 10 to 20. So it's not totally different when it's so few. So, you know, that one was just like, try it for whatever. So we got that out of the way. Yeah, it didn't do, it was okay actually, to be honest with you, but we couldn't turn it into like a revenue spinner. To be honest with you, we didn't really understand idle games to the level of nuance that you probably need. Um, we could have kept going there. So then we thought, okay, we could make another idle game, but really it was just used to like take the company up another level, hire some more people, show that we weren't just like some guys thinking about doing a startup, but actually done the startup, had yeah. actually released. And I think that is important though, because when people see that they can, because you get like a lot of people like, oh yeah, they'll do a startup if like they're given the money and they don't have to take any risk themselves. But if you're an investor, you don't want to do that, right? You want to see people that are shown they've got the guts and the persistence to do it. That means a lot. So right. that kind of showed that we did that. So then we started working on, you know, what was going to come next. And then at the time, Archero was like a really popular game. Of and course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we were one of those companies. But the reason why Archero was very inspiring to us is, again, going back to that core philosophy of trying to take um, sophisticated games and making them more accessible. We felt like Archero was that game. It was like, hang on a minute, you know, this is taking an RPG mechanics. Like dungeon crawlers have been tried on mobile for years. Like people have tried it so many times. And they'd done it. And the joke was, is the way that they did it was forgetting all the complexity. It was simplifying it. It was making it one-handed controls. It was making the shooting automatic. It was kind of making like a bullet hell game. And it was one of those where we just all looked at one another and were like, man, this game is so simple. Why were we so stupid not to think of this idea first? I'm sure we're not the only ones that did it, but I really think that game is like a phenomenal game. Like the base level design is genius. Um, after Clash Royale, I thought it was like the second best mobile game I'd ever played just because it was like, I think when you're designing, it's really hard to design something that is simple, but sophisticated. It's one of the hardest things. Most designers go the other way, but it can make like, so I used to work for Capcom. Capcom makes some amazing games, but a lot of their games have the same problem, which is that they're hard to get into. Street Fighter is the best example of that. It's like, if you want to do a dragon punch, you've got to do some cumbersome motion and press some buttons. And it's like, if you can break the, the barrier to understand how to do that, the game's amazing. But how many people do they miss who cannot do a dragon punch? Well, I know it's a lot because I've seen it happen. So it's like, you know, remove that and just get to the gameplay. So yeah, we started making an archery style game. We made ours multiplayer. That was the innovation we came there for. This game's great. But the thing that is missing is that like when we went dungeon raiding in Diablo or World of Warcraft or something like that, it was more fun with friends. We know yep. social works of games, so let's do that. We tried making it though didn't really succeed. Uh, we had some execution problems on that one. We learned a lot though, to be honest with you, that engine that we had then is the thing that we're using now. So we kept kind of iterating on it for a few years. We tried some variations of it. Then we went to uh, making the game more like a monster hunter style game. So we felt one thing that was weak with Archero is that although it's really good that it's simple, you could argue that it's too simple in that you're just dodging bullets all the time. And it means, especially with multiplayer, you might as well just have like an additional pet standing next to you that's clearing the bullets for you. That isn't really sort of like the need to work with another person because the levels are very small. Like I get it, it makes it kind of hyper casual and easy to pick up, but you lose that kind of design density or depth that you would have later on that would make for these kind of sophisticated things. Like if you think about like a MOBA or Overwatch or something like that, the fact that someone's the DPS, someone's the tank, someone's like the utility character, these are the things that, um, you know, give the game that real sort of teamwork element. So we tried to make the game a little bit more complex. We went to like landscape, yeah. added these kind of controls. Uh, we had this kind of drop in, drop out multiplayer and we built that game. And that game was like really good fun to make. But again, we tested it and it just wasn't, you know, you're, you're looking for like the aha metrics. So so when, when you guys are testing, do you do, do, or were you doing any of like the traditional CPI kind of testing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. like with, with Geek Lab and stuff, like before yeah, you yeah, make yeah, the yeah. game and yeah, yeah. And then, yeah so you did all that stuff and then you built the game and then like you're further testing it kind of a thing. Yeah. So that was always our philosophy is like we had like a strong team that could make games quickly. We did dare to go quite innovative, even though the ideas may not have sounded that innovative to you as I just described them. But the idea was always like, you know, no longer than six months to get from test to market. Yep. 
and then like you know don't worry if it doesn't work out move on to the next one because the thing is is i would say maybe other people are luckier but i would say i've worked on more failures than successes even though i've worked <laughs> on games that have got to top of the console charts or top of the mobile charts it's just that like you know statistically how many games even released every day it's thousands right you know you can't take it too personally just like learn move on to the next one and you know i think that's kind of one good side of product management so yeah, yeah for us it was more like just getting the kind of routine of going quickly and being efficient and we always felt that like if we had enough time given the talent we had on the team that eventually we'd find something that works and um, yeah that's kind of the ethos we were built around but i mean there's all sorts of ways that doesn't have to be the way that everyone goes i definitely admire teams like dream and um now i forget what their name they're called spike the the ones that just raised 55 million from uh gripping games that like rena from who's the, the co-founder of peak like, oh yeah, yeah down yeah. in uh istanbul that place is crazy <laughs> oh my point is though is they know what they're doing right so yep. the thing is is that yeah they might have raised 55 million but i can kind of see exactly why they've done it because it's like okay worked at peak for 11 years proven tomb blast toy blast dream games have just shown the team coming out of there could work these guys are going to nail it. You get all the right people, the marketing, the UI, the UX, the gameplay, yep. the product management. What are the chances of failure? Like just because there's a lot of these games on the market doesn't mean there's not room for another game on the market. I mean, people like playing new stuff. So yeah, I mean, sometimes I feel that like maybe we should have been, you know, more reserved in what we tried to do. You know, that's always an argument. You can't kind of second guess yourself sometimes. Though. There's so many if buts and maybes. I think for me, I never really get angry if a, a game or product doesn't work. I actually get angry if it takes too long to test it. It's like, I'd rather say we tried something cool. It didn't work out in the six months, move on, than like take six years and it didn't work out. Like that for me is less forgivable because that's like a huge amount of resource you put into something that you weren't really ever sure that it could work. And also, you know, if you are trying to go for like more of a breakout hit, then by its very nature, you kind of need to experiment a bit more. But, you know, they, people have different philosophies on this kind of stuff. Yeah, cool. And then enter Web3 and stuff. So tell me your thoughts on, on Web3, blockchain, player, and games. Yeah, well, I mean, how long have we got? That, that's the problem. <laughs> I kind of don't, don't want to necessarily, um, you know, cover too much old ground because so much about is written on this subject every day. I mean, yeah, I mean, I feel it's like, you know, I, I put in a recent blog post on our own site that like, I feel the rocket ship is taking off, right? Like, uh, if you want to go to Mars, forget even the moon, get on, get on Web3 and get on it now. Um, but I, I do think, like I said, I think it's like a huge paradigm shift. I think for me, it's pretty easy to understand why. It's that we all love games. Well, not everyone does, but I certainly love games. And if I could play my favorite game and then make money out of playing that game, I would just love that game even more. Like, you know, going back to my days playing Street Fighter, you have to put your coin into the machine to play that game in the arcade, right? You're literally telling the guy next to you that, oh, my 50 pence piece here says I'm better than you, right? And if you beat them, they come off the machine. And if you're good, you stay on. And, you know, for me, because I didn't come from the best upbringing, you know, you could stay on that machine for hours if you were really good, right? Which made it good. But ultimately, when you lose, you still lost your 50p. But it's like, imagine that you could play that game and then by the end, because you've been on it for five hours, you actually came out with more than you started with. Like, my God, I don't think I'd ever work in games. I'd still be in the arcade right now playing that game because I loved it so much. You know, <laughs> Maybe that's a different problem that we're going to create on society. But, you know, I, I still think that's fundamentally the case. And I think also, like, you know, NFT discussions are interesting because, you know, I'll aren't you just paying for something that, you know, you can just right click and save the image and everyone has it. But you could think about it a different way, which is that if you play a game, a lot of the data is just stored on someone's server somewhere. It's just a digit. Like in Clash Royale, really behind the scenes, the difference between you having like a level eight barbarian and a level four barbarian is just different bits on the back end, right? That's all it is, right? And you've arbitrarily grinded, paid more money, et cetera. So then why have it that just one company has access to it? Why should it not be in this kind of decentralized location where it could be honored or used elsewhere? Um, you know, I feel that's like a really big thing. Now, I get it that people will counter that argument saying, yeah, but that means like, you know, if Supercell turn their service off, your item isn't going to be, you know, you can't use it anymore, which is true, but you still do own it. It may still have value to someone. And, you know, the whole idea of the metaverse is that, these things will start to be honored across different games and different platforms. And when that happens, then all of a sudden it does pick up more utility. So, you know, that I feel is like the more later stage idea that we'll see in years to come, coming more of 
fruition. Um, but I think just in the meantime, uh, to be honest, I think there's more to it than that, though. I, for me, what makes me really excited is I think to myself, man, I was born in the wrong generation. Like, imagine being around in the web 1.0 days when, like, pets.com was worth 200 million and you could just have any idea and just put .com on the end of it and raise yeah, hundreds we, of millions. We don't even have to build a business. We could have just bought all the .coms and just sold them, you know? <laughs> well, that was a business. I'm pretty sure that was a business, right? Like, GoDaddy and things like that. But to be fair... For all those kind of busts, there were definitely companies that did stand the test of time, Amazon being one of the big ones there, eBay, PayPal, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, you might think, oh, but well, that opportunity will never come along again. And then, you know, with Web2 companies and social media, Facebook, you know, Twitter, TikTok, you know, that proved that that wasn't the case. There could be like another change. And I feel like Web3 is like that all over again. Mm-hmm. for now like you know the opportunity and i think the exciting thing really is that most of us don't even really fully comprehend what is possible with blockchain including myself and you know, <laughs> this will be worked out in, in in years to go and you know what will be the big winner from the web3 generation i have no doubt that five years from now there'll be some kind of site that we probably don't even know what it is right now that is like as ubiquitous as these platforms that we just described and could only have been done on blockchain and it's a part of everyone's day you know daily life and so whoever makes that as well is going to be probably making a killing like the likes <laughs> of people haven't seen yet so that's really exciting too but also not just from a financial perspective but there are also you know other things that can be done with it too like you know coming back to gaming as i say i feel like one thing that gets slept on a lot is that with play to earn gaming like you hear stories about this all the time like people in the philippines vietnam earning more money than they would do working like a year's worth of their job in one month in their country like that's amazing like I don't know what it's like where you are but right now in the UK like the cost of living is going through the roof because of inflation because of like the knock-ons of the pandemic because you know economies had to be propped up etc etc so in a time where this is happening and people are literally having you know provably a, a worse life this year than they had two years ago because things are more expensive and their salary hasn't met expectations the fact that such technology exists that could help some of the poorest people in the world have a better life i think is like truly incredible and so that's just a sweetener you know and i i used to like joke actually that you know deconstructor of fun sometimes i jokingly call it the destruction of fun because I feel like um, what we did on that site, unknowingly, by teaching everyone how to make really good free-to-play games, is that people jumped on it and they maybe <laughs> practices that did it benefit gaming, yes or no? I think there's benefits both ways. Like, you know, I still think free-to-play is a great model because you can try out a game for free. But at the same time, when you have games that are just designed to get you into a dopamine rush and monetize it, <laughs> you know, you're preying upon player psychology. So with Web3, the idea that you can actually do things where people can just, you know, they own their own assets, they can sell them when, you know, your girlfriend stroke wife tells you it's time to stop playing games and grow up <laughs> and you can still cash out all that time. That's great. You know, you could pass it on to your, your kids. I mean, like, I, I feel you will get stories in like 50 to 100 years time where it's like, you know, this uh, obsidian shotgun you know, of, of Hammond that we have was passed down from your great grandfather <laughs> to play this when he was 13 and now you will be bestowed with it and it works in Call of Duty 75 because that's still going to be around in my opinion that long and that would be kind of cool in some ways so um, yeah, yeah that's just like a bit of rambling in my thoughts but I, I'm passionate about the subject and I think the more that I learn about it the more that um, yeah it really I think it blows my mind what can be achieved with this, the technology. So here's what I was noodling on this morning Um, so I, I saw a post on LinkedIn that I thought was very interesting. And at first I like completely agreed with it. And then I had a bunch of further thoughts on it. Um, and so I I think the post was something along the lines of, you know, when people ask me my opinions on play to earn or, or play and earn or whatever you're calling it now, um, you know, I, I've started to just respond to it this way. I said, pick any AAA game. Which would you rather have? A AAA game that you just play and then you're done with it, or a AAA game that you play and then when you're done with it, you can take the things you've acquired and, and go on and sell them, kind of a thing. Um, and it was kind of like an aha moment. It was like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Like, yeah, I would probably rather have the option to be able to sell stuff and have like the value coming out of it. 
But then I, you know, I was working out and I was thinking about it some more. And I was like, but you know, let's take Skyrim because somehow that game's got me to like buy it like three or four <laughs> different times on different platforms. And I don't even know how. Um, I've really only played it, you know, significantly when it first came out on the PC. Um, but yet I bought it for the Switch and the Xbox and everything. But um, I was like, think about Skyrim. I was like, okay. Yeah, I, I can see as I'm playing the game and I acquire things or like, you know, it was a pain in the butt to go through like crafting the dragon armor. But like once you got that and you got your skills up to being able to use it, and it was like pretty baller and like you're, you're awesome and stuff. And I said, so then I started thinking about the fact, okay, now I have this dragon armor. Well, what does that actually equate to from like an NFT perspective? Does that mean I own it so that if I start the game over again, can I just like use the dragon armor at level one and just be like insanely powerful? Likewise, if I sell it to someone, are they able to use it at level? Like, does that actually destroy the fun into the game? And I started seeing all these different layers of complexity that start to be added in. It's almost like the, the World of Warcraft auction house, right? Mm -hmm. Where okay, I can pay real money, sell it for gold to get the, the, the pass or whatever. Um, and, and then I could buy something. But in World of Warcraft, they kind of got around that by introducing like level restrictions of like, okay, yeah. if you want something super powerful, you've got to get up to level 60 and XYZ and you can't just like pay to. So like, I think there's going to be a lot of additional complexities that start to come in when you start to introduce these like NFTs and what usability and, and passing through and stuff actually means um so yeah I, I don't know that that's just kind of what i was thinking about i don't know that i formulated any uh <laughs> strong opinions one way or another but it, it was fascinating to think no, I, I, I would yeah i agree with what you're saying i think that's 100 percent true but i i see that still just like the nuances of design like that right. problem could be equated to many games as well i mean like especially if you do games like you know i always think in free to play puzzles and dragons is like the the kind of gospel game to play if you want to understand how a loot box and gacha system work and that has a very similar thing it's like oh sometimes you're going to pull a monster that's so outrageously powerful that your first week <laughs> of the game you'd win automatically so they just put a cost on it which means you can't use it until your team has enough stamina so they were always and that doesn't devalue the prize of that i think if anything you could argue that when you get a monster like that early game it actually motivates you to keep playing the game so you can use it and that first time you put it in your team and you play with it and it just outrageously destroys a boss, you're like, whoa, you know. So, uh, yeah, I get it. I get it. But I don't, I don't think that's a problem, really. I, I yeah. think that's just game design rather than that's, that's not anything to do with the NFT, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think it's just a, a game design thing. But I think it is interesting at showing me through just like the complexities of the addition. Like when you add NFT, it's not just a simple like put it in there's a lot of game design stuff that comes through it's almost like if you've ever read the uh the the game design of a door question um which is you know very interesting to read through um but anyways that's cool so moving a little bit further i did want to talk through what does like a a long-lived blockchain game start to look like so you know obviously we've seen games kind of transition from you know, you build it and you ship, then you work on, you know, Diablo 2 and then Diablo 3 or whatever to games as a service, which I presume that blockchain web three games are basically going to be this live based game for most of them. Um, but I'm curious, like, what do you think live ops is going to look like in web three games? Is it going to be different or is it going to be, you know, mostly the, the same that we've seen of, of providing new content or is it still a vast, vast unknown? I, I think the long-term play here is going to be DAOs, right? So um, decentralized autonomous organization, for those who don't know, there they go, tip for the day. But yeah, I think that like what will happen is that, yeah, to begin with, games will just do regular live service operations. But I think what tends to happen with like, especially successful games, or even kind of, maybe not even so much successful games, but middling games, is you get to a point where people really like the game, but from the developer's perspective, they can't really commit any more resources to it because it doesn't make sense. And then the people on that game get bored of working on it. They want to work on something else. And then the kind of game quality goes down and then the game kind of traditionally dies and, and that's it. And that would be kind of sad. But now I think what can be done is that the game can be exited to a DAO via, if you've got a token-based economy, so that people who own the tokens now own the game instead. And then that community can then do whatever they want with the game instead. So 
I'm a really big fan of Age of Empires 2, which probably shows you how old I am, because I used to play that game when I was in college. Um, you know, I remember it just coming out back then. It was like an amazing game to play. And that game has been going on for like over 20 years to the extent that Microsoft released a few years ago a definitive edition, which is still like, now they have tournaments for this game for like $150,000, $1,000 that they weren't even doing 10 years ago. So in fact, it kind of made like a Jesus style resurrection from the dead and is really popular. And what happened with that game is something kind of similar. Like it was almost dead, but there was like a community that really loved the game. And then the community started making their own mods and patches and someone even made their own expansion for the game. And the expansion was sort of like good enough that Microsoft asked them to make a HD version of the game with the expansion. And then that sold well enough that they thought, oh, why don't we do like a definitive edition? And then a streamer sort of started streaming the game and it picked up. And so I kind of feel that that's almost like the real life example of what I think will happen to live service games. So I think what will happen over time is you'll have like a very passionate community that want to keep playing the game and make their own kind of things of it. The developers won't. So the developers will kind of release all their source code it will go to the DAO, then whoever owns the DAO, and then that community can run the game. And then depending on how many people are in the DAO or how much money they've got, because, you know, you have games like EVE that don't necessarily have the biggest player base ever, but have a player base that's quite happy to spend because they love that game. Or you can have a game where, like, there's millions of players, but people don't really spend, but it can still be maintained. So I think this is, like, a very interesting uh, dynamic that could happen with games. I think, obviously, there's a lot of challenges to be solved there, like, you know, with the code that they're using, how close is it going to things that are owned by Turn, turning over the tools? And yeah, 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 yeah. Is a real like multi conglomerate going to be happy doing that kind of thing? But I think if things are set up the right way, it should be possible and feasible. And I would actually argue, I have to say, us as a studio and us as like a co founding team, we've discussed it a few times, and like it's not something to think about right now because we've got you know much, uh, you know, bigger fires to fry right now. But I do think that, for example, when you're building a company, a real challenge, uh, especially if you have like a, a real emphasis on team culture, is when you're going from like a 20 person studio to like a 100 person studio, it's like, how do you actually retain the culture in the team? And, you know, one potential thing is like, well, maybe what you do is like rather than you becoming multiple game studios is you just exit the game and then everyone works on a new game. And then that way, because you as the developers will still have tokens in the existing game, you will still be making money from it. So it's almost like being like an artist on Spotify or something. So Tom, that amazing rock ballad that you cranked out in the early 2000s with your wife, you could still be making money on that, but you're free to make your new album right now where you're taking it in a musically different genre. You could do the same with games. So I think we might see some things like that. I think the only thing that works against that is that you know, companies that might be seen as devaluing the, the net value of what's in the company if they're looking to sell as an equity play versus tokens. Um, well, although tokens themselves, I think is a fascinating thing that I don't think people are talking enough about. Like the fact that you can essentially sell equity in a game instead of a company is mind blowing. Like that is such a revolution. And, you know, when I found that that was even possible, I was like, no way is this a thing. And it is a very real thing. And I actually can see the benefit of it too, because I think it's like, if you are someone who invests in the game, your ability to exit your position in it is way faster than hoping that a company gets sold. And, you know, I've seen quite a few cases here in London, actually, of companies where they've got to this kind of in-between point where they were kind of successful companies, but they didn't really have the hit game. And then like the early investors are like, okay, you've been at this seven years now, I kind of want to return on my investment. But then the guys there are like, but it's not worth selling because the investment won't be low. And then, you know, well, what should we make? I'll just make this one thing that's just bring it up a couple of 10 to 20 million in valuation. And you've got this kind of weird situation which didn't really do that. So, you know, that could get around that problem perhaps. So it'll be interesting mm -hmm. how it goes. But yeah, I think um, DAOs is, is going to be uh, a really big topic, I think. Um, maybe some regulation needs to get passed, but I think a lot of games will do it. Probably Axie Infinity may well be the first one to do it. No, that's super fascinating to think through. You know, I, I always have this belief that user-generated content is always just, it's always going to be better than anything even the most talented dev teams could make because, you know, at most you're going to have, what, like a few thousand people on your team that are actively working on it. And, and that's probably even unrealistic to talk about. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> even if you did compared to millions of, you know, people that are adamantly passionate about something and, and making these experiences and stuff. Um, I mean, like you look at the, the Roblox platform mm -hmm. and 
even with the professional studios that are in there and stuff, most of the top games are all from like the native people that like grew yeah. up playing Roblox and then they made more Roblox games. And it's like a, a single dev like made this thing and like the players love it and stuff. Um, and so I think if you're able to provide the right tools and the right context and, you know, enable people to go on and do these great things. Um, yeah. <laughs> that could honestly be the the coolest sort of live ops that I could even imagine. Now I, I don't know how it all worked, like tied together well, and different things like though, that. Right? But but yeah. uh, no, that that's super fascinating to think about. Yeah, people are definitely making that play right now, and I think it goes even beyond that because you've got with the ability of NFTs that you know you have technology where you can kind of put your own texture onto an NFT. So then people are essentially creating their own content for the game that gets minted and has value. So you could be someone that spends hours making like an amazing statue for a game. And then the statue then can be put into the game and then it accumulates value. And you've, you've literally made digital art that has real value <laughs> and real game mechanics. You know, I feel like these are the ideas of really what the metaverse is trying to get to. Because obviously it's such a buzzword and what it really means can mean different things to different people. But I feel that's where it's going. I think, as you say, these are all proven concepts in existing games or UGC sort of uh, playgrounds. So just merging it all together, someone will win really big doing this kind of stuff for sure. Yeah. So I, I do want to switch gears a little bit just with the, the last little bit of time that we have here. So okay. I, I actually know a lot of studios that are, are perfectly what you describe of like, Hey, we had some early hits. We like got up to the point exit doesn't really make sense. We've still got like one or two live games from like the earlier days that are making enough to like pay the bills and stuff, but like they don't really have like a true hit on their hands per se. Um, and a lot of them are, were, were like early movers and free to play and they're seeing web three and they're kind of saying, well, we're going to take this team. We're going to like give it a go at uh, Web3 or whatnot. So I'm, I'm curious for those that are thinking about doing that or, or for folks that are thinking of starting a studio altogether, like, you know, what are some lessons that you've learned um, about launching a game in Web3 that, you know, you think would be worth sharing? Like, does it all start with like a Discord channel and the community or, you know, do you, should you try to do the token sale right away or, yeah. Oh, they're great questions. I probably could do an entire another entire podcast <laughs> on that with what I've learned. I, I have to say, I think the really big thing is that you have to be kind of like either all in or not in at all. Like I think if on your team you have some people that are against it, probably not the best idea to do it. I think as well, if you're going to do it before you start doing it, you've got to really take like minimum a month of really doing the research. You've got to really play the games. You've got to understand how they work. You've got to educate yourself on blockchain. Um, get yourself scammed if you have to, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, understand it all so you really can get an idea of like the world that you're going into. Because I think the best piece of advice I could sort of say when you're launching like a blockchain game is that I would even say you're not making a blockchain game, you're making like a crypto project. And that's an entirely different way of thinking about things. Like I know that there are people, for example, that passed on us because they said that we weren't crypto native. And um, I, I can't disagree with that. <laughs> that's 100% true. And that's because at the time we weren't. And, you know, I, you could argue even right now, I can't say that I'm as native as someone who's been working on crypto projects since, you know, 2016. No way. So really sort of learning that side of it and, you know, get involved in the communities for other games or other NFT projects and seeing what they're doing. Like, why are they building success? Why are the people in there enjoying it because then you've got to take those ideas like i think like the mistake that people will be making is they're being like okay yeah we're great at making games so yeah we'll just go in and and now there's this finance is easy to get we'll just go in use that and we can sustain the life of the company and then it's great um actually we're literally just having this conversation today at lunchtime between the founding members of the team and we feel that like really by going this route you know you're basically creating like a new type of company in a new type of industry um, I would very much liken it to, so, you know, I'd worked in traditional console PC development for a while. Then when you start working on live services, you'd have this concept of a product manager. Uh, the irony is that I became a product manager without even knowing what it was. Um, I actually, well, I'm not even joking. So I, I, I joined a company called Gree and um, 
originally I tried to join her as a game designer. I'm like, yeah, we're going to give you the job, but we're going to give you the job as product manager. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I go, oh, because everything that you've just described to me about you analyzing the game and looking at the metrics and then designing features to improve those metrics, that's what a product manager does. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm one of those then. <laughs> and, um, you know, similar to that in this industry, because you've got like the whole realm of finance coming into it and DeFi, these are entirely new skill sets. So, you know, like I say, that's where you've really got to be comfortable. Like if you're going to go into it, you've got to recognize that you're not really a gaming studio anymore. You can definitely have games as like 99.9% .9 of your culture, if you like, but you really have to bulk up the other aspects of it. So therefore, how do you launch a game? Well, first, you've got to educate yourself to understand what those things really are. I have to say that something that's been very eye-opening is speaking to the hundreds of crypto VCs that are out there, which is incredible by itself, is that a lot of them will really quiz you pretty hard on things. And um, you really have to understand them. And probably a bit like, you know, you just asked me the question now. I know that right now, so many other people I know who are also founders of other companies in the space are reaching out to me and they're saying, oh, hey, do you mind if I just speak to you for half an hour? I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Like, I really believe in that, you know, karma is important. Like, you know, what you give out kind of gets returned and people helped us when we first started out. And whenever I speak to them, I would say it's quite often you can, I, I sort of say to them saying, speak to me in like a month. Like you've got like a lot more understanding to do on the subject or <laughs> they'll ask me some specific questions. And I'd be like, I could give you the answer, but I think it's actually better for your own benefit to, to learn yourself. Like these would have like certain like tokenomics, uh, utility of tokens, uh, what should the starting price of a token be? How much should you be looking to raise? Like you just have to start somewhere and work it out yourself. And like, if you're not prepared to do that hard work, again, I don't think that's the, the way to go. You'd be better just doing what you're kind of doing. And as I say, you know, we're just recognizing, as I say, coming from that experience where I've not worked on a free-to-play game before and then the free-to-play game absolutely just destroyed everything that came before it. It was like, <laughs> okay, the world has gone this way. There's no point like, you know, the games has changed that that's that literally a game changer that's how i saw it as being like the production process everything was going to have to be geared around it you're going to need to find these people that are very good at analytical skills like a data analyst it turns out does have a position in the game studio whereas before <laughs> you know before you just used to have like creative directors that were just like it's my way or the highway you know yeah. you could have the best idea in the world but if they don't like it it's just not going in but, you know, I feel in some ways that's a good thing in games that now someone could come up with an idea, then you can demonstrably show them that their idea actually worsened revenue rather than increase it. And then they haven't really got, it doesn't matter sort of how arrogant or egotistical they are, they can't mess with the actual raw hard science. And so, yeah, yeah. at the same time, don't get me wrong, I love the kind of like, a lot of people say, yeah, but isn't that kind of moving games away from art, which is what it kind of started off being. I do agree with that. It's kind of sad that we lose a bit of it, but... I mean, it's a bit like you can look at movies, right? Like Marvel movies are pretty formulaic, right? But they're pretty successful. So, and people like them. I have to say myself personally, I don't like them. You know, I used to love the comics as a kid, but I find the movies too formulaic. But I mean, I I'm not gonna, you know, dismiss someone that does want to see them. Like if you enjoy it, great, you know, you, uh, it's good, hard, clean fun. You could go, go knock yourself out. So, um, yeah. yeah. So you definitely just got to know where you're getting yourself in for. Do the research, play the games, buy the NFTs yourself, understand the systems, um, Im immerse yourself in it completely. Love it. That's fantastic advice. I think for anyone starting anything, you've got to just be all in. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think that what will happen is you'll see some high profile failures. If you have a studios where 50% of their portfolio is existing games, and then they're trying to make like a new game using stuff on the blockchain, and it just won't go anywhere. And I think it won't go anywhere because they'll have like all of the disadvantages of being part of a regular company with none of the advantages of being like in the crypto space. Like they won't be able to share enough information with communities. They won't be able to be open and transparent. Like, you know, DeFi is decentralized finance, right? The decentralized is a pretty key part about that. If you're not going to be doing that, then how many people are genuinely going to be interested in it? I think as well that like, there's obviously a big play from everyone right now, which is that, okay, these games are going to become mainstream. But as of today, that's definitely not the case. And it may still be quite a while before that happens. That's why you see when Ubisoft try and put NFTs into their games, whether or not you think it's been implemented well or not, there's a reason why there's a massive, you know, outlash to that. Whereas 
games in Asia, no one cares about it, right? Like they they like it. If you're building it for the community that likes that kind of stuff, people will support it rather than the other way around. Yeah, that's fantastic. Cool. Well, I, I know we're about out of time here. So I do have one last question for you. Because it is the Master <laughs> Retention Podcast, it is, yeah. you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years to help increase retention? Like, how do you keep your players playing for longer? <laughs> well, give them what they want is what I would say. But I think that, <laughs> I, I think for me, it's, it's not going to be the most rocket science answers, but there, I'll give you two. One, making the game social, so any kind of thing where you can build into your loops the ability to do it with other people and have more fun is always going to make a product stickier because then you get that self-fulfilling loop of like one friend will call another friend to be like, hey, Tom, should we just jump on and play some insert game X? You know, that always brings other people. And a lot of the time people play the game even just for that social aspect more than playing the game. Like the amount of kids I know that play Fortnite, but don't even like the game, but play it because all their friends are playing the game. It's crazy. And it's because they made like a very social space that's safe to hang out and it's fun to hang out with other people. So that's number one. And number two, um, live operations. I still think keeping your game fresh, changing the content, um, you know, even small variations, making it feel like it's alive. That's what will keep people stuck a bit. And I think, you know, League of Legends is a good example of how just changing the metagame via balancing and different champions is not really the most revolutionary thing every time they do it, but it does keep people who are interested in the game engaged with it. And that's what they really want. It's just like enough of it to change it. To be honest, it's a bit like the, the new burger at McDonald's when you had the burger of the month, right? It's You're probably still just going in for a Big Mac, but maybe one day you come in and you get like, I don't know, the Hawaii 5-0 burger or whatever the special is that week and, and you think of those ways. So sorry, I don't have anything massively innovative to give you there, but those have been my two tips to improve retention. Oh. Yeah, or maybe, maybe I should say, just make your game play to earn because according to Axie Infinity, <laughs> Uh, day 30 retention of 40%. That's probably the tip that everyone wants to know. How long that will sustain for, we'll have to wait. And, until everything's play to earn, and then it's going to go yeah. back to, you know, being competitive yeah. and stuff. But um, all new, I, I love the live ops. Even looking at, you know, League of Legends, like, you know, every once in a while, they they toss in like a new game mode and you come in to play and you see this new game. So, well, I've, I've got to try it out and you play it once and then maybe you want to play it another five or 10 times. And, and then it's like, oh, if I just had this champion in this game mode, it would be uh, yeah. you know, so much fun. You buy it and then you do well and you want to buy the skin. You know, like it keeps driving. Yeah. So I, I love it. Cool. Well, Anil, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, if people do have any, you know, questions or want to reach out to you, is there a good way for them to do that? Um, there actually isn't at the moment. I am on Twitter, <laughs> but I actually don't like being contest on Twitter, but it is at AnilDG on Twitter. I guess that's the best way to do it. Um, you can link it in the, the, the notes afterwards. Cool. Awesome. All right. Thanks so Thanks much. Time, Tom. Take care. Bye-bye.